Anyway, my name is uh, Joel Michelson. I'm an oral surgeon from uh, Rochester, Minnesota. I work in a group practice uh, with uh, five oral surgeons. Uh, and uh, my interest in missions goes way back since I'm a MK. My parents were uh, missionaries in Cameroon, West Africa, and I was born there. Uh, but they came back when I was young. I went back and uh, taught school and was a treasurer for three years for the Cameroon Baptist Convention and then went to dental school and uh, have been doing short-term trips ever since. I would encourage you to not fall in the trap I did where you end up having six kids and having all your school loans to pay off. Uh, I don't know how many people uh, are in training now. couple? Okay. Uh, there are, MedSend is a great organization to talk to if you want to be able to get out on the field right away uh, because that, that debt load can, can kind of tie you down. Anyway, uh, our, our job as Christians is to share the light. Uh, this is uh, the Empower trip I went on, uh, uh, what, two, three weeks ago. Uh, and this is Dr. John Tackett and Steve Cherry. So it was a trip with three oral surgeons, which I guess is unusual for Empower. So, but, but that we did survive. Uh, and uh, I'll throw on a few slides of the trip just to keep you interested. You always have to do a disclaimer at the start of your talk. Uh, my disclaimer is that I'm an oral surgeon. I make my money mostly by removing wisdom teeth. And since we're talking about wisdom teeth, I do have a vested interest. Uh, but hopefully my uh, moral and ethical uh, principles uh, outweigh any uh, interest in financial gain. Uh, and I'll let you be the judge of that. So, uh, Wisdom teeth... Uh, as you can see here, are not always wise. They don't tend to go where they're supposed to. Uh, and uh, what are wisdom teeth? Some of this, you know, if you're a dentist, a lot of this is going to be review, but there are a, a few things in here that, that probably are new for you. Uh, the third molars are the most posterior and last set of molars in the human dentition. Uh, they're used for chewing and grinding food. Uh, they're called wisdom teeth because they usually are up between the ages of 17 and 25, purportedly when a person has reached the age of wisdom. As, as a father of six children, you know, that that's a, a, it would be a statement at best, but uh, that's where the, the word uh, name wisdom teeth came from. What's the economic impact of third molars? Uh, in the United States annually, approximately 10 million third molar extractions are done. Uh, the annual cost is about $3 billion dollars. And uh, third molar surgery ranks in the top three in frequency of all surgical procedures in the United States. So uh, it's big business. Why are they a problem? And this is from you know a, a reputable uh, reference. This is Wikipedia. If you go to their website, it says wisdom teeth are vestigial third molars that used to help human ancestors in grounding down plant tissue. The common postulation is that skulls of the human ancestors had larger jaws with more teeth, which were possibly used to help chew down foliage to compensate for lack of ability to efficiently digest cellulose that makes a plant saw well. As human diets changed, smaller jaws gradually evolved, yet the third molars or wisdom teeth still commonly develop in human mouths. So uh, evolutionary thinking is that, you know, they're vestigial, that they uh, are there because the jaws have evolved to a smaller size, but teeth have stayed the same. And, you know, just like most evolutionary gesso stories, it's probably not true. Uh, there are factors that affect third molar space, uh, loss of more anterior teeth, such as six-year molars, uh, 
people, you know, six-year molars come in when you're age six. Uh, by the time the third molars come in 12 years later, if you don't have hygiene, uh, you're probably going to be missing one or two teeth, or you're going to have teeth that are, are broken down and there is more space. Uh, probably more importantly, uh, when our diet changed from uh, eating unprocessed food to processed food, uh, it altered the growth and development of the jaws. Uh, the, the old saying, form follows function, if you're chewing uh, raw corn for your diet, your jaw muscles are going to be working a lot harder than if you're uh, you know, eating grits out of a package. So uh, without that need for muscle function, the jaws are smaller and, and narrower. And then uh, also as you chew a, a hard diet, your teeth will uh, become shorter and they'll also become smaller because they rub against each other. So you have attrition. If you look at skulls of uh, ancient, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, most of the teeth were totally flat across the top. And then there are genetic factors. Uh, this is an inter interesting study that said the populations that consume a soft, refined agricultural diet tend to have shorter, broader jaws than those who consume a hunter-gatherer diet and exhibit longer, narrower jaws. Uh, the latter group has significantly more space for third molars. And uh, so that, you know, basically the reason that we have uh, no space is because of our diet. It's not because we're devolving or... It's an, uh, an evolutionary drop-off. Uh, this is Dr. Tackett. Uh, this gentleman here is, is Pastor Zach, who was one of the first empower-trained dentists and uh, had the privilege of meeting him and listening to his story uh, on the trip. And I don't know if you saw that little southeastern uh, magazine that's available out in the lobby, but they have a, a, a couple articles on our trip, and it, it's, it's worthwhile to read through there. It kind of gives you a flavor for what Empower does. Uh, but Pastor Zach was... Uh, is actually a, was a missionary to Mali from uh, Ghana and uh, had to leave with the shirt on his back and his, his kids because uh, Al-Qaeda came in there after they were driven out of Libya and uh, took over the area where he was working. And uh, the, the idea that uh, nationals are taking over mission work is a very valid model, and uh, it's, it's a good thing to see. When I was in uh, Ghana with the team, I ran into a Cameroonian who came and sought me out because he was from Cameroon and knew I was from Cameroon. And he was actually a missionary from Cameroon with uh, YWAM and was working in the area uh, doing cross-cultural missions. Anyway, we'll go through quickly uh, third molar development. This is all review for dentists, for non-dentists. Uh, interesting information to have so that you have a better understanding of why teeth become impacted. Uh, the initial calcification... Whoop, occurs at age seven to nine. And uh, these are the third molars here. These are the six-year molars, 12-year molars. Uh, you, they start out as just tooth germs, and then they calcify and then uh, develop over the, uh, the younger years. From age 12 to 14 is when mineralization of the crown, clinical crown is evident on uh, radiographs. And uh, this is just Panorex showing that. And then Root formation is half complete, usually by age 16. And these, these ages are arbitrary. I see 12-year-olds that have teeth like this, and I see 25-year-olds that have teeth like this. So don't pay a lot of attention. It's more a clinical uh, diagnosis based on radiographs. And this is just showing root formation. Uh, age 18, you can see the roots are almost fully developed. And... Uh, our main concern with wisdom teeth, the main complication that we try and avoid is you can see the dark line coming across. Uh, that's the inferior alveolar nerve and canal that carries blood vessels and so forth to the mandible with 
the nerves being close to the roots of the teeth uh, when third molars are removed, uh, by all possible means, we want to avoid uh, damaging that nerve. Otherwise, it leads to numbness in the lip or chin. Uh, the lingual nerve is also important in the back, but it's a little less involved with the development of the teeth. So by age 18, you have pretty much complete root formation. Uh, as far as how many teeth are impacted, there's really no good study that shows that. This was a, a study that was done on a population of uh, Scandinavian dental students. Dental students always make good subjects for uh, uh, studies, but 25% incidence overall uh, with a higher incidence and lower jaw. Uh, the majority of the teeth that will erupt will do so by the early 20s with 90% erupting by age 24 if they're going to erupt. Uh, they can erupt any time in life. I, I recently saw an 80-year-old that had a wisdom tooth that had migrated over a period of about 10 years and had broken into the mouth. Uh, now we're going to go quickly through third molar pathology. Uh, pericornitis is probably the most common presenting symptom that we see. Caries, periodontitis, abscesses, infections, cysts and tumors, and the miscellaneous concerns. And pericornitis is basically uh, when you have a, a wisdom tooth or third molar that's broken through the gum tissue, uh, it's exposed to the oral environment, bacteria settle there, uh, and you get uh, chronic inflammation around that crown of that tooth. The most common reason for therapeutic third molar removal. This is what's going to bring patients into your practice because they have pain uh, and it's something you can do something about. It runs a gamut from being very mild to being severe and possibly even life-threatening. Uh, the symptoms are pain, swelling, trismus, or difficulty opening the mouth, uh, bad taste, uh, bad smell. Uh, there might be purulence and drainage in more severe cases. And uh, a lot of times they'll be unable to chew because when they bite down, they're actually traumatizing the, the gum tissue in the back, uh, which is called the operculum. So this is just a clinical picture. This is the operculum. This is the impacted third molar. This is swollen up. Uh, you know, if you have an upper third molar and you're biting down, it's, it's uh, traumatizing that tissue and you can't really even shut your mouth. So sometimes we'll even take out that upper third molar uh, until things settle down and we can go in and get out the third molar below. How do we treat pericornitis? Uh, local debridement, irrigation, oral hygiene, uh, antimicrobial mouthwashes, chlorhexidine rinses, and uh, hot salt water soaks for mild cases. <clears throat> More severe cases where you have swelling, uh, fever, severe pain, uh, may require systemic antibiotics. Uh, the antibiotics of choice usually are moxicillin or clindamycin. And then close observation, uh, more aggressive treatments such as incision and drainage, uh, if the infection increases and spreads. The definitive treatment is to remove the tooth. Uh, it's going to become a chronic problem if you don't. Uh, just by definition, because there's no room for the tooth to come in. The tissue is going to always present that situation. If you have real good hygiene, you can delay the process, but you're not going to cure it long term. Timing of extraction is controversial and varies with the severity of the infections. How many dentists here would uh, take a tooth out in the presence of an infection? Okay. Most of us. When I trained, you know, that was a no-no. Now it's like, well, why wouldn't you? Because you're removing the source of the infection. But... And then in a limited resource situation, what can you do to buy time until the patient can get in to get uh, definitive treatment? A perculectomy uh, might be a, a temporary solution. And what that is is basically just excising the tissue around the third molar. Uh, this is rarely curative. That's why we don't do that in the, the United States. Anybody do this as a standard treatment? Probably not. 
because even if you take away the periculum and you, you prevent the pericornitis, you're going to still have periodontal problems where the, the tissue is up at the back of the tooth where it can't be uh, cleansed. Dental caries, uh, third molars are exposed to the environment, or if they are, uh, just like any other tooth, they can be attacked by bacteria. Uh, you have to maintain hygiene. It's very hard to brush in the back. Most of the time, the decay we see on third molars, on upper third molars, it's on the back surface where they can't reach with the toothbrush. On the lower teeth, it's usually in between the teeth. Uh, partially exposed impacted teeth cause particularly dif difficulty in hygiene, and uh, the second molars are usually involved if the third molars are involved. 77% uh, of the subjects in a recent study had experienced caries in at least one of their visible third molars, and that was a fairly large study uh, looking at adults age 52 to 74. So even if you have erupted third molars, the caries incidence is, is, is fairly high. 77% uh, is you know, almost uh, two-thirds or three-quarters. Uh, what does caries look like? We talked about interproximal caries, and uh, as it progresses, it becomes more severe. Uh, with an impacted third molar, Obviously, you can't cleanse this area, so you end up having uh, uh, severe decay on the second molars, uh, same process. Uh, here, you know, the upper teeth have interproximal caries. Here, the second molars have uh, interproximal caries. Treatment, uh, usually there's no sense in uh, restoring third molars because they're minimally functional. Um, I just took out a tooth, third molar the other day that had a gold crown on it. I'm like... Okay, somebody didn't have uh, enough money to make their Mercedes payment or something. But And I asked the patient how long he'd had the crown. He said about three years. So uh, go figure. Anyway, in limited resource settings, if the second molar is involved and that you're not going to be able to get restorative treatment, sometimes it's, it's beneficial to take out both the second and the third molars. And the big advantage of that is it's a lot easier to take the third molar out. It becomes a simple extraction versus uh, an impaction uh, which creates a quandary if you're doing this in practice in the U.S. is if you take out the second molar and you can slip the third molar out, do you charge for a partial bony? I don't know. <laughs> I usually don't. Anyway, periodontitis is uh, basically gum infection. Uh, for non-dentists, this is a periodontal probe that's used to measure the bone levels between the teeth and around the teeth. Uh, the attachment of the teeth is soft tissue and then uh, bone. Uh, if probings get above say, four or five millimeters, then that, by definition, is periodontal disease. Uh, this is a gentleman who had a, a severe case of periodontitis, uh, and these are a couple of the lovely molars that we removed for him. Our trainees, these, these are the kinds, you know, when you're training somebody, you don't really want them doing teeth like this because then they think it's too easy. But uh, really... Uh, Interesting uh, gentleman. Uh, and it's interesting, most of our patients were Muslim. Uh, we prayed with them. We were able to share the gospel with them. Uh, in northern Ghana, the Christians and the Muslims actually get along very, very well. Of course, it's folk Islam, and uh, Christianity is also sometimes a little bit uh, mixed with uh, syncretistic beliefs. But um, anyway, periodontitis is due to access problems with uh, thinner mucosal tissue, tissue in the back. Uh, even fully erupted third molars have been proven to be more susceptible. Uh, with impartially exposed impacted teeth uh, with periodontal bone loss, the second molar are usually involved early on. So if you have periodontitis starting around the third molars, it's going to move forward uh, fairly predictably. Uh, what kind of pocketing do you get? This is 
you know, pretty typical of what we'll see with an erupted third molar. Maybe the tissue is about here. Uh, there's no way to really clean this area, so you get uh, a long-term chronic infection. Uh, same type of thing here. With impacted teeth, bacteria get underneath, uh, so you lose most of the bone along the, the second molar. Uh, this creates a situation where both of these teeth are compromised. And unless you get this, if you take this tooth out at this stage, there's a good chance that uh, a lot of this bone will regenerate. Uh, a lot of good studies showing that. So that's, that's the reason uh, early intervention is much better than later intervention. And it becomes progressive to cause periapical involvement of the adjacent teeth. And in this situation, both both teeth would need to be removed. Uh, periodontitis is uh, usually caused by pathogenic bacteria and biofilm, and biofilm is a big research subject now. Uh, dentists have known about biofilm for years because that's what plaque is. Uh, and what a biofilm is is just a community of organisms that are uh, reinforcing each other through uh, different mechanisms. Uh, some of the bacteria will create a film that holds the uh, pathogenic bacteria to the teeth, and then other uh, bacteria will cause decay. Other bacteria will cause uh, loss of tissue attachment, which creates pocketing, which will allow other types of bacteria to colonize the teeth, and it becomes a, a vicious cycle, and that's the progression of periodontal disease. Periodontal disease of adjacent teeth where there are visible third molars is progressive and is usually only partially responsive to treatment unless uh, the gram-negative organisms that are, are more pathogenic in which uh, colonize the, the third molars are removed. Uh, pocket depths of greater than four to five millimeters and bleeding on probing should be recognized as signs and predictors of the future progression of periodontitis. And studies of the microflora of asymptomatic disease in the third molar region show that the absence of symptoms does not indicate absence of disease and that pathogenic bacteria exist in clinically significant numbers around asymptomatic third molars. Uh, you know, there's a big push uh, in public health, or there used to be, I think it's kind of lost some of its momentum, to not take out any asymptomatic teeth. But if teeth are asymptomatic, it doesn't mean that necessarily that they're not diseased. And all of the, the recent studies with periodontal disease especially have shown that it's a progressive entity and that it has uh, long-term implications. Uh, probably the biggest concern is the indication of uh, indicators of chronic inflammation that exists in periodontal pockets in and around asymptomatic third molars. Uh, the inflammation can become systemic. And uh, a couple of uh, more recent things, if, if you read the periodontal literature especially, there's, there's a big push to have everybody clean their teeth to avoid heart disease and preterm uh, delivery. And uh, there is a, a solid clinical link between the development of atherosclerosis and uh, this is independent of all the other risk factors. So uh, the effect of periodontal therapy on atherosclerotic disease, though, hasn't been clinically or adequately studied. So we can't say, well, if you keep your teeth clean, you brush and floss, you don't have gum disease, that you're not going to have a heart attack. But, uh, you know, since it is a multifactorial uh, system, and, you know, this is a real busy slide just to show that there are, you know, dozens of factors involved, but that the uh, inflammatory cytokines especially that are released into the systemic circulation by uh, infected third molars uh, definitely can be implicated and probably are implicated. And the same thing applies to the uh, connection between gingivitis and periodontitis and uh, preterm pregnancy uh, delivery and uh, adverse outcomes. Uh, 
Uh, periodontal infection can lead to placental uh, fetal exposure and fetal inflammatory response leading to preterm delivery. I read an article a couple years ago where there was actually a, a, a baby that died in, in uh, utero because uh, oral organisms had crossed the placenta, and when they cultured the, the uh, autopsy specimens, it was proven that the link was between the, the bacteria in the mother's mouth and, and the child. So, you know, that's just a case report, but uh, the evidence is, is fairly uh, strong that there is a, a very strong link between the two. However, uh, they've done num numerous studies since this link was uh, hypothesized uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, trying to, to control periodontal disease during pregnancy, and uh, it hasn't been successful. And probably it's because 30% of the patients that receive treatment during pregnancy with scaling and root planing and oral hygiene still have progressive disease. And uh, so you really can't just do a one-shot uh, we'll, we'll cure the periodontal disease by cleaning the teeth and telling the mom to brush and floss. And again, it's a multifactorial uh, entity. Inflammation is what we're looking at as, as the input there. Uh, what are the treatments for periodontitis? Uh, you know, the standard treatments are scaling, which is just scraping all the deposits off the teeth, root planing, which is uh, going deeper down below the, the gingival attachment and cleaning things, and then... Uh, Sometimes antimicrobials will be uh, also injected into the, the pockets. In a limited resource situation, brushing and flossing is probably the main uh, thing that you can do. Uh, scaling and root planing is a fairly simple intervention, but uh, if you're like me, you don't like cleaning teeth, uh, that, that's, that's not something that people are going to have access to in most, most circumstances. Surgical pocket elimination, uh, periodontal surgery, uh, chemical debridement, or removing, in the case of uh, third molars, if you take the wisdom teeth away, the, the pocket goes away with it. And then antibiotics. Uh, third molar infections uh, either carries or periodontitis can uh, progress to the point that they uh, create an abscess. Uh, and I won't go into this in detail. Uh, Dr. Melinda did a good job of talking about infections, so I'm just going to kind of skip through this, but progresses usually cellulitis, then frank abscess, and then the abscess can spread along the fascial planes to adjacent spaces. And, you know, you get worst-case scenarios where it uh, spreads down. This is the Ludwig's angina uh, where you have a compromised airway and possibility of, of severe morbidity. Uh, the treatment, incision and drainage, uh, systemic antibiotics, treatment and source of infection, again, removing the offending tooth, and then supportive care. Okay, this, this is a patient that presented to the clinic in Ghana a couple weeks ago, and uh, you can see she's swollen. Uh, so you think, well, right away you can see a little space where it's draining down there. She has a severe infection. But uh, closer clinical examination, she actually has an expansion lesion that's uh, pushing the teeth out of position. Uh, if you squeeze it, it's pretty firm, so it's obviously not an infection, which... Uh, brings us to our next entity, which are cysts and tumors. And Pastor Zach was uh, asking me, he had a case where he had somebody with a very similar presentation. He removed the teeth, and they didn't get better, and he wasn't quite sure what to do because, uh, you know, his training, he didn't really know oral pathology at all. And uh, so, that, you know, our, our training that we, we give uh, these health workers has some severe limitations, and so uh, it's good that they're 
there can be backup to help uh, them understand what actually is going on. Anyway, cysts uh, around third molars usually can have a fairly dramatic presentation if they're not caught early enough. Uh, they're preventable by removing the tooth and the follicle. Uh, the follicle and peroneal tissues is the source of most of the third molar pathology. And uh, treatment is, is guided by histopathology. And again, this is a, a problem in limited resource situations because you don't know what entity you're dealing with. Uh, but fortunately, uh, most, most of the cysts that we see are going to be dentigerous cysts or follicular cysts, which are benign, uh, and they compromise more than 90% of uh, presenting cysts. So in a limited situation, you could probably treat them as a follicular cyst or a dentigerous cyst. Uh, and basically, it's just an enlargement of the follicle. It's like a balloon that expands. You lose bone. And uh, a lot of times, they'll present because that uh, will break through, and then it becomes secondarily infected. Uh, the next most common entity is the keratocystic odontogenic tumor, which we all learned as the OKC or odontogenic keratocyst. This is the New World Health Organization designation. They think since it responds more like a tumor uh, than a cyst, uh, that it should be, be renamed. And the, the concern with the, the keratocystic odontogenic tumor is, is that it tends to recur and it has to be treated more aggressively. But if you treat them all as uh, dentigerous cysts, 90% of the time you're going to have a good outcome. And since this is an oral surgery lecture, we'll, we'll go through a real quick cyst treatment. Uh, we always got to have the, the blood and gut slides. So uh, you want to aspirate the cyst, rule out a vascular lesion. Uh, I had a, one of my mentors uh, had a radiolucency, assumed it was a periapical abscess on a second molar, uh, extracted the tooth, and had bright red blood streaming out of there. Put his thumb on it. Uh, he was in a smaller town in, in southern Minnesota. Spent 45 minutes in the ambulance with the thumb over the hole till they could get him to a secondary care facility where they could do an embolization because it was an AV malformation. So if you see a radiolucency before you go in there and open it up, you may want to aspirate just to make sure that it's not uh, an AV malformation or something along that line. You can uh, decompress especially large cysts, or you can do something called marsupialization where you uh, decompress it and the cyst will uh, gradually reduce in size, and then it'll be a little easier to uh, remove, and it will also leave a much smaller defect when you do a, a final uh, excision. And complete excision with concern for possible mandibular fracture uh, if it's larger, so that's why uh, decompression is a good idea. And then you want to do long-term follow-up to make sure it wasn't a cyst, uh, an odontogenic uh, keratocyst or, or tumor, because you will have recurrences if it is. Um, I generally, if it's a large cyst, will do an incisional biopsy so I can get a histopathology so I know what I'm dealing with so that when I go back and do my definitive treatment, I know whether to treat it more aggressively or less aggressively. Uh, this is just showing aspiration. You get this uh, milky fluid, or usually you'll get straw-colored fluid, uh, and then you know it's not a, an AV malformation. Uh, this is... The, the key to removing cysts is to have good access, uh, good lighting. You have to be able to visualize the entire uh, working area so that you can uh, remove the cyst using usually just curettes. Most, most of the time, especially if you do an incisional biopsy, the wall will thicken and you're able to remove it as, as a, a large specimen. So this is that cyst being removed, and there's your impacted third molar uh, sitting in the back. Uh, just... 
keep in back of the mind, not all radiolucencies are cysts. Uh, they can be tumors, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, metastatic carcinoma. Um, we won't go into tumors. They're, most of them are rare and most of them are, are bad actors. But uh, the main thing is we need to determine whether they're malignant or benign, uh, whether they're odontogenic or non-odontogenic. Uh, they can be primary or secondary, and then the, the diagnosis is what's going to determine the, the treatment. Uh, probably the most common tumor, and again, this is probably 80-90% of them in the, the mandible, would be an ameloblastoma, which is locally aggressive, but it's not uh, malignant. Uh, it doesn't spread to the other parts of the body, but it can. it's hard to eradicate. It's like the, the keratocyst where it uh, invades locally, so you have to do a wide excision to, to be curative. Uh, more uh, ominous type of tumors would be an osteosarcoma, which uh, has a fairly poor prognosis, and it's usually uh, pretty easy to determine because you get the sunburst type of uh, appearance on radiographs. Uh, you get firm expansion, just a CT scan. Uh, it moves teeth, it uh, causes erosion of the teeth, uh, and uh, facial deformity. And the treatment, obviously, is it's not something you're going to do in your clinic. It's, you're going to refer them for uh, resection and then reconstruction. A couple of miscellaneous problems with third molars, resorption and super eruption. Resorption, uh, go back. Resorption is instead of getting decay on the second molar with the third molar pushing on uh, the dentin of the teeth, the body will actually cause that uh, area to resorb, and that will create a defect on the second molar. And then... Uh, Super eruption, if you have an erupted third molar with no opposing tooth, the, the tooth will tend to drift down. So patients will ask, well, you know, if you take out my lower wisdom teeth, they're the ones that would bother me. Why do you want to take out the top ones? So this would be the reason that you do that. Uh, and then third molar teeth, especially impacted in the angle of the mandible, create a situation where the jaw is a little more likely to fracture. So if you get bopped, it's most likely going to break through the third molar area. And there were a couple studies that showed that this was indeed the case. Uh, take a little uh, five-second break. Any questions at this point? Uh, okay. Uh, now we're going to kind of just go through indications for third molar removal and, uh, you know, what do you tell your patients or what do you uh, tell your kids? Why do they have – should they get their wisdom teeth out? You know, these are the questions that people are going to ask you all the time. And basically there's uh, three factors involved, the cost, uh, the risk, and the benefit. The consensus is if you have symptomatic third molars with associated pathology, they should be removed, uh, no question, unless uh, I was talking to the gentleman in the front row who works in Kentucky, and he can tell you that, uh, you know, with Obamacare coming, uh, they're not even going to cover for pericornitis or pathology. Uh, it, it, it was depressing to hear him <laughs> tell me what's going on. So, yeah, anyway, we'll, if we have time afterwards, he can tell you. Tell you, he basically, uh, dental care is imploding in, in southeast Kentucky because there's no reimbursement and there's there's no, you know, it's, it's bureaucrats telling people what they can afford and they're actually asking for their money back that they gave them years ago for treatment that they had done because the government doesn't have money to pay for it. Anyway, asymptomatic third molars with significant pathology, again, they should be removed. You have a cyst, it's not going to be painful, but it's obviously something that's going to progress and cause uh, problems down the road. Or in my thinking, if you have periodontal disease, that would also be a reason to remove them. What's controversial is, is prophylactic removal ever indicated. You have somebody, they have 
pericornitis, they come in, do you just take that one tooth out or do you take out all four of them, especially if uh, one or two of them are, are partially erupted? Uh, are fully erupted third molars beneficial? That, that can be debated. Uh, do the surgical costs and risks justify removing third molars at the optimum time? And that's what we're going to look at here a little bit. And then when is the optimum time? <clears throat> So for each person, uh, the risk of retention versus over the benefit of retention plus the benefit of removal over the risk of removal uh, would lead to a decision to remove. And uh, for all practical purposes, the top uh, fraction is zero, if you think about it. There's really the risk of retention is, is going to be a, a fairly significant number, and the benefit of retention is probably going to be pretty close to, to nil. So... Considerations, there are costs and surgical risks involved in third molar removal. Uh, you know, you have a recovery, you have a surgery, you have an anesthesia, all of which have a possibility of complications. So that would be the downside. Uh, but with improved technology, cone beam scans, where we're able to uh, determine how close the nerves are to the apex of the teeth, uh, improved surgical handpieces, and uh, different uh, surgical techniques, uh, such as coronectomy, where you remove just the top part of the uh, third molar, leaving the roots that are uh, intimately involved with the nerve intact, uh, has uh, a very minimal risk to the teeth. Um, so th these have all decreased the risk and increased the predictability of treatment. The other side of the coin, third molars provide little functional benefit, and with the advent of implants and third line, uh, keeping third molar teeth is a third-line treatment option at best. Uh, you know, people would say, well, you need to keep the wisdom teeth. If you lose a second molar, then you can use it for a bridge. You know, how many of you would do a bridge versus doing an implant in that situation? Uh, probably nobody. Anyway, the cost of lifelong monitoring, and this is probably the biggest factor uh, public health-wise. Uh, if you retain third molars, you're almost obligated to take an x-ray every couple of years at least to pick up pathology early. Uh, and that, over the lifetime of a patient, that cost probably it actually does outweigh the cost of removing the teeth at an early age. And then there are local and systemic implications of third molar retention. We talked about that, the connection between uh, inflammatory disease chronically in the body <clears throat> if you do retain them. And then the complication rates and surgical morbidity and difficulty increase over time. So early intervention is much more predictable, uh, much less of a problem than late intervention. And again, the timing, uh, we'll go back to these developmental slides, but uh, can you take teeth out at, say, age 7 to 11? If you look at the little tooth germ that's forming here, it's very close to the uh, surface of the alveolar crest, uh, very readily accessible. Uh, and this just shows it in the mandible. Uh, it requires minimal bone removal. Uh, you just go in there. It's just a little piece of follicle, basically. You can slide that out, and it takes very little time. Uh, the problems with doing that, uh, patient maturity, anesthesia concerns, uh, and parental support, all these things are, are variable. Uh, it's not predictable. Some kids do very well. You know, you've all experienced this in your practice. Uh, you know, you have two, two kids the same age with the same situation, and one of them it's an hour nightmare, and the other one it's a five-minute procedure. So, uh, Removal at this age is controversial. Uh, there are not a lot of studies uh, in the literature that would support this. Uh, the questions revolve in most of the studies that were done before is whether the tooth would eventually erupt. And, again, 
that's probably not a valid concern because even if it did erupt, is it going to be beneficial long term? Probably not. So anyway, you can do germectomy. It, it is beneficial in that it, uh, post-operative pain is minimal. Uh, it's a very quick procedure. It's well tolerated. You can usually do it under local anesthesia and compliant patients. Um, the downside of it is that maxilla is a, is a totally different uh, uh, entity because they tend to be high up in the maxilla. The small size makes location difficult. Uh, there's in re- increased risk in developing second molars due to the size and location, and uh, operating time and frustration level are, are greatly increased. And then, as a result, you have increased post-operative morbidity. So if you look at, you know, these are going to be easy here, but up here you're going to have to remove a lot of bone. You're, you're working close to the second molar. You can't really see back there. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult procedure to do. So in summary, lower thirds are usually simple. Uppers are difficult and there are more risks. Uh, as patient age, the morbidity is uh, increased in the lower third molars, uh, and there is less anesthetic requirement, but very, very variable patient management issues. So what happens if you wait a couple more years? Uh, the crowns mineralize. The lower thirds start to descend a little bit. The upper thirds are still very limited, uh, and you still have maturity issues. So 12 to 14 is probably not a good intervention time either, uh, and again, you can see these uppers are, are way up there, uh, very inaccessible. The thirds have started to go down. This bone is a lot thicker now, uh, so it's a little bit more difficult to get those out. Age 15 to 18, which we would consider the golden age, uh, the root formation has begun is progressing to completion. Uh, patients are more psychologically accepting in surgery, and research confirms that complication rates are lowest in this age range. So... If you look at these teeth, their roots are developing, uh, but there's, again, some resorption of the alveolar crest because the tooth is uh, starting to uh, try and erupt. Uh, these upper thirds have come down. There's very minimal bone over them. Uh, and so a procedure at this time is going to be much more simple and it's going to be much less uh, taxing on the patient. Uh, the follicular space allows relatively easy delivery. Uh, there's no periodontal ligament attachment. Uh, the deep follicle of the forming roots actually acts as a buffer or safety zone between the root and the inferior alveolar nerve. And then the downside is the tooth may be uh, hard to section or immobilize because it tends to spin in the socket. So we've all had those situations where we kind of just keep chasing it around the little dark hole back there waiting for it to come out. Uh, and again, just another example. Uh, readily accessible, the nerve is not going to be involved, the sinus is not going to be involved. Uh, you're going to have a good outcome. A uh, little bit farther aging, the root development is not always complete, but it's still very favorable. Uh, and everything else, the bone gets a little harder. Uh, it becomes a little more difficult. And then uh, the next age group, 22 to 35, uh, nearly all patients in this age group have fully developed third molars, and you've lost most of the advantages of early removal. The nerve's going to be down around the root. The bone's going to be harder. They're going to have more surgical uh, trauma. Uh, <clears throat> the bone is still a little bit elastic in this age group, though, which simplifies removal and improves healing as compared to uh, later on. And again, the patient population is generally healthy. Uh, anybody under 35, there are going to be fewer comorbidities, uh, fewer concerns with uh, medical management and anesthesia management. 
As you progress 35 to 45, uh, most patients are still uh, relatively healthy. Uh, the mineral content of the bone is increased and uh, delaying healing and increasing difficulty and morbidity. And then over 45, uh, highest complication rates, including infection, bone loss, and fracture. Increase of incidence and poorest recovery from nerve injury. So the nerve is more likely to be involved. And, you know, in my practice mentally, I just think that they put it off because somebody told them not to get it out because the nerve was involved. So it's kind of which came first, the egg or the hen. You've got a difficult tooth that's got nerve involvement. Now it's infected. If you'd taken it out, you know, 15 years before, the nerve would probably recover. But if we take it out now, uh, the nerve may not recover. Uh, it probably won't. Uh, and that's a case where we'd consider coronectomy again. Uh, increased discomfort and swelling, prolonged healing. Uh, I, I get these patients, you know, I just had a 60-something-year-old gentleman. We took the tooth out. You know, I'm still seeing him six weeks post-surgery. He's healing, but he's healing very, very slowly. Uh, with bisphosphonates, uh, especially in the older population, uh, you know, there's that, always that concern of, of not healing because of uh, the other comorbidities. So in summary, uh, treatment in the mid to late second decade decreases surgical risk, morbidity, and difficulty in a patient population that will recover more rapidly or in, and generally are in good health. So uh, my recommendation would be you know, 18 to 16 to 18. And that's really all I had. Uh, any questions on anything? Yeah, it, I mean, I haven't done a lot of them, but, uh, you know, the, the, there's, and the reason I hadn't is there hadn't been a lot in the literature, but now, you know, it's been 10, 15 years. Uh, generally what you'll see, sometimes you'll see migration of those roots away from the nerve, and if, uh, you can go in and, and easily remove them without worrying about the nerve. Probably the biggest risk is infection. Most of the complications involve infection, and you have to go back in uh, to remove them. But the incidence of, of Paresthesia and nerve damage is much, much lower. Uh, and it's a fairly simple procedure. You know, uh, insurance companies cover it now. It's got, it's coded in ICD behind it. So it's something you probably see more and more of, especially in the older age groups. Yes? And what's the, uh, the rate of infection? Um, it's probably in the range of 5 to 10%. Uh, one, one study, I mean, it was a study of about 30 people, and they had uh, 3%. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. In that earlier population, I, I have taken out second molars and allowed the third molars to come in. You can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's a valid point. I, I, I worked with a, a couple of orthodontists. That was kind of their standard treatment is to have us remove second molars and then the third molars would migrate in. It's, the literature kind of is 50-50 on that, and you, know, you run the risk. Yes. Can you, can you comment at all about the practice in the UK or other Commonwealth countries? Uh, the World Service they have similar feelings about timing. And yeah, uh, you know the, the UK has NICE, which is their national institute of whatever, and they their criteria are much uh, more stringent for removing. I mean, they'll only allow symptomatic third molars. And there was a, a study that came out last year. Uh, looking at the long-term effects of that, and they were seeing more problems in older populations, obviously. 
So the question is, you know, that's the cost-benefit ratio. You know, if I'm the patient and I, I think there's a significant risk, I want the teeth out, but the insurance isn't going to pay for it. Is it worth me uh, taking care of it myself? But I can, I can give you the reference on that. I have it in my briefcase somewhere. But, uh, you know, and that's where we're going with Obamacare is where you're going to have uh, restriction of treatment. You're going to see increasing problems in older age groups because treatment wasn't done uh, at a, a optimum time and then that increases the morbidity. But, you know, from a government bureaucrat's point of view, you're going to save billions of dollars by not taking out asymptomatic teeth and what percentage of those are actually going to progress to symptomatic teeth. And besides that, then you're putting it off down the road. You know, it's something you don't have to worry about for five or ten years, which insurance companies use the same logic. Other questions? Yes? What, you said the state where the incidence of reattachment, um, that's always for me a factor. I, you know, we're asymptomatic impacted teeth mainly taken out because of periodontal concerns of the second molar. Mm -hmm. And you talk about... You, Talk about some studies, you know, yeah. chances of reattachment, and, and that, that's my question. What are the? Um, Actually, there's a study that just came out. If you take out upper second molars, you get more attachment on the distal of the, or third molars. You get more attachment on the distal of the second molars. Uh, you actually increase the, the, the bone attachment, even on lower third molars. Most of the studies that were done, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, were flawed in that they never even probed the third molar pocketing depths before they took the teeth out. And so then you had these studies that said you take third molars out and you're losing attachment on second molar. Well, that attachment was already lost. There was no bone back there to start with. And so you're creating a healthy situation where you have a cleansable situation. How, 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 how affected is that by age in terms of... That, that's the main thing. I mean, if you want to do bone grafting and so forth, uh, that's usually not a benefit until you get into you know, the older age group over age 45, for example. Correct. Formation and the studies talk about that in terms of yeah, yeah, and age. even so, you usually get a cleansable situation. Even though you may have some attachment loss, you're not going to have frank pocketing, and it's going to be something that can be maintained. So, anyway, this is uh, the. I, we'll, we'll go ahead and close here since right at the end of time. Uh, this is the motto of Seed Ministries, which is a, a real good model for ministry to Muslims. That uh, we were we stayed at their compound when we were in Ghana. And uh, they did children's Bible clubs, uh, backyard Bible clubs like we would call them here. They had 6,000 Muslim children that weekly would come in, learn scripture, uh, do contests, etc. And uh, most of the trainees that we had had gone through the, these uh, Bible clubs and had become uh, strong Christians. And, uh, you know, Muslims won't allow their children to go to church, but they'll allow them to go to back, backyard Bible studies. So... There are a lot of innovative ways of reaching people around the world. And this is just to show that, you know, even though we, we sow in tears, we do reap our rewards. This is the, the rooster that they gave us for our efforts when we were in Ghana. Uh, that's my son. Uh, he was very helpful. Uh, I always like to take my kids along on my trips if I can because the more we expose them to missions, the more likely they are to, to do what, what the Lord would want them to. And that's it. Okay. And... All right. So you, your advice to someone who's considering volunteering for Ghana is to not worry about the fact that it's a Muslim country? Yeah, I mean, there, there are cultural things you obviously don't want to do. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean it's it's not a situation. And uh, I'm I'm on the board of a hospital in in Guinea, West Africa, and it's very much the same situation there. It's more folk Islam. When I went out and did uh, village clinics, I stayed in the house of the imam, you know, which was a dirt floor and all that. But uh, it. They were very receptive to, to us, especially if we're providing something that their community needs. And that opens the door. And then, uh, you know, they're pe- like people everywhere. They're, they're very open to, to new ideas. Uh, the worry is, is as, you know, that North African uh, Al-Qaeda influence becomes more and more strong, uh, how long those doors are going to be open. Like our hospital where it's located in, in Guinea, it's 99% Muslim. There are no Christians. Whereas in Ghana, you know, Christians are maybe 20, 30% of the population in northern Ghana. So, uh, you know, the time is short. The doors are open now. But how long they're going to be open, we don't know. Other questions? Okay. Well, thank you very much for your attention. And uh, appreciate your time. <laughs>